This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special, featuring some compelling moments from our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Let there be justice for all. Let there be peace for all. Let freedom reign. God bless Africa. I thank you. What so many of them would say about Mandela is that what he gave to that moment, to the country and to that moment in history, was getting out of prison and not feeling bitter. I hope everybody listening is is involved, but if you're not, get involved. I got that from Cesar Chavez, who said to me, tell everybody to get involved in public action for justice and peace. When we define peace journalism, it's almost easier to talk about the opposite. And the opposite is simply the traditional journalism that sensationalizes violence and that doesn't consider the consequences of its own reporting. Stay tuned for Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special featuring compelling moments from the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, along with Carol Boss and Suzanne Kreider. Whether it's the search for inner peace or learning how to resolve conflict with others in our homes, schools, workplaces, communities, or between nations, we consider it here on Peace Talks Radio. We also spotlight great peacemakers throughout history and those doing the good work today, whether famous or not so famous. And this special edition starts with part of a piece filed for us by reporter Zach Rosen, who explored the story of a woman known as Peace Pilgrim, who walked and walked and walked for peace for years and years. When Peace Pilgrim started out, the Korean War was still going on, and an ominous threat of a nuclear attack was on the mind of many Americans. And so, with Peace Pilgrim written across her chest, she was walking, as she called it, coast to coast for peace. For 28 years, the entire length of her journey, she never used money, ever. She gave new meaning to the word minimalist. She wore the same thing every day, blue pants and a blue tunic, which held everything she owned. A pen, a comb, a toothbrush, and a map. That's it. And I own only what I wear and carry, and I just walk until given shelter, fast until given food, Don't even ask. It's given without asking. I tell you, people are good. There's a spark of good in everybody. In July of 1981, the day before she died, Peace Pilgrim was interviewed by Ted Hayes, the manager of a small radio station in Knox, Indiana. Peace Pilgrim, you know, there are a certain number of people that would probably think of somebody like yourself as a kook or a nut. Do you have uh, a problem uh, overcoming this barrier with some people? Well, I'm quite sure that some of those who have just heard of me must think I'm completely off the beam. After all, I am doing something different, and pioneers have always been uh, looked upon as being a bit strange. But you see, I love people, and I see the good in them. And you're apt to reach what you see. The world is like a mirror. If you smile at it, it smiles at you. I love to smile, and so in general, I definitely receive smiles in return. I was driving along a road in Ohio at night, and I saw this figure, white-haired, with some kind of white lettering, walking along the road, and then as I drove by, kind of dashing a bit out of the way of the traffic, 
and I had no idea who it was. My name is Richard Palacy. I'm a um, book publisher and um, editor. Years after Palacy saw her walking on the side of the road, he met Peace Pilgrim, and they became friends. A decade after she died, he and some other friends collected her writings in a book. Peace is what we called her. We called her by her first name, Peace. <laughs> During the early years of my life, I discovered that money-making was easy, but not satisfying. Out of a feeling of deep seeking for a meaningful way of life, I began to walk one night through the woods. And after I had walked almost all night, I came out into a clearing where the moonlight was shining down. And something just motivated me to speak. And I found myself saying, if you can use me for anything, please use me. Here I am. Take all of me. Use me as you will. I withhold nothing. That night, I experienced the complete willingness without any reservations whatsoever to give my life to something beyond myself. Fifteen years passed between this striking moment of clarity and the official beginning of her pilgrimage. The motto she had sewn on the back of her tunic when she started out, walking coast to coast for peace, quickly became outdated. By 1964, she had already walked 25,000 miles. Eventually, she stopped counting. She was very directed in her purpose. She knew that everybody had their own calling and their own mission, and this was specifically her own. She was simply a singular witness for peace. And you know her peace message was overcome evil, evil with, good. with good and falsehood with truth and hatred with love. There is a magic formula for resolving conflicts. It is this. Have as your objective the resolving of the conflict, not the gaining of advantage. There is a magic formula for avoiding conflict. It is this. Be concerned that you do not offend, not that you are not offended. That formula will work between men or between nations. As she became more well-known, Peace Pilgrim began getting invitations to speak at schools and churches. That's what brought her to Knox, Indiana in the summer of 1981. Was there anything about her that you remember? We didn't know who it was at first. Not until it was in the paper. My name is Terry Bow, and I'm just a housewife. And my name is Tony Bow, and I run uh, the, the business here, Bow Collision Repair. Peace Pilgrim, a woman who spent her life walking thousands of miles through every state and most of Canada, lost her life riding in a car. Uh, Tony and his wife, Terry, were outside uh, in the yard when the accident occurred. About 75 to 100 feet up the road there, approximately right where that utility pole is there. I got on the side of her. She was still alive when I got up there. I was talking to her, just telling her everything would be okay. That's about all I remember. Peace Pilgrim really ended up in the hands of the right people, just by serendipity. Even though we didn't know her, we didn't know her any of her writings or anything like that, we still lived her life. It, it, if, if it, you know because I believe in exactly what she believes in, <laughs> uh, being free and uh, try to have a more peaceful world amongst people. 
Peace Pilgrim's journey ended on the side of that road in Indiana, but her followers say they continue to find meaning in her message and to be inspired by her example. Peace Pilgrim has been my guest today in her literature. She says, Peace Pilgrim is on my back, 25,000 miles on foot for peace. And she has finished walking those miles, but she continues to walk. For her vow is, I shall remain a wanderer until mankind has learned the way of peace. Appears to be a most happy woman. I certainly am a happy person. Who could know God and not be joyous? I want to wish you all peace. Independent producer Zach Rosen on Peace Pilgrim. On that same episode, we interviewed another woman peace elder, Sister Peggy O'Neill, who told interviewer Megan Camrick many stories about her many years working for peace and conflict-ridden El Salvador. I read a story one time you stepped between soldiers at a roadblock and a man they were planning to arrest. Can you talk about that? I'm surprised you read that, but that is true. We were all in church. Padre Alberto was preaching. And we were going to go on, go on an excursion. And Pat Farrell, my dear friend, said to me, go out and check to make sure the bus knows it's leaving at this hour. Come back and tell us. You know how they make announcements after church. And so I went out, and at the bus stop, I saw a man running, being chased by another man. And he was running towards me, and then I realized he was really coming to me. And the man chasing him was an undercover agent in town of the army. So his stopping and my interfering blew his cover, which was probably the most drastic thing that happened. Um, But anyway, everybody gathered, and this man was frightened. And then after the the one man chasing him, by then two soldiers with AK-47s came And again, you don't think, you just kind of respond. So um, I had my arms around this man, and it meant I was pushing away these AK-47s and realized no matter what I was saying, there was not going to be a mediation. Um, And so finally I said, look, you're going to take him, but we both go together. And I'll get into your truck first because... By then, a truck had come, and the driver got out, and I could tell he, too, saw that it was at a standstill. And he was relieved that I had broken this moment open. And um, so I got in first, and this little man from Copapayo came in after me. I didn't know where they were going to take us, and I thought maybe Cojutepeque to a military cartel, but... No, they just went around the corner to where the local military were and made us sit for a couple of hours. And Anyway, it was because he had erased something in his ID card that a soldier had put there, and he knew you shouldn't have written it. And if you hadn't been there, they take this man at that time yeah. in El Salvador. Yeah, he would have disappeared or he would have been tortured. Um, but yeah. we went home together down the hill, and this man bought me charamuscos, which is a little like a Kool-Aid frozen. And um, he ate one and I ate the other, and it was truly holy communion. 
For more from Sister Peggy O'Neill and Peace Pilgrim, visit us online at peacetalksradio.com and look for our March 2013 episode. Our July 2013 episode came just a few months after 2012's awful shooting of school children and employees at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut. We talked with three people, two who had faced gun violence personally, and one who was responding to Sandy Hook from afar. First, though, here's Colin Goddard, a survivor of 2007's mass shooting of 32 at Virginia Tech University by a disgruntled student. We started first hearing loud banging noises coming outside of our classroom. Uh, The teacher went to the door to look into the hallway to see what was going on and making all that noise, and as soon as she opened it, she shut it back again and said, Everyone get underneath your desk and somebody call 911. I pulled out my phone and dialed 911. I said that we were in Norris Hall, there's, I think there's a shooting going on. And as soon as I basically got that out, we saw bullets coming through our door. Everyone jumped underneath their desk and went to the floor. You're seeing uh, police out with their weapons drawn, students out looking, trying to see what's going on, running out of buildings. And then the bangs just got much louder again. You could tell he was back in our room. And that's when I was shot a second time in my left hip. And he shot me the third time in my right shoulder. And then it flipped my whole body around and I exposed my right side and I was shot for a fourth time in my right hip. It seems that I only remember a couple more gunshots after that and then everything got quiet. And as soon as the police came into the room, they said, shoot her down. And that's when I was like, shoot her down? What? I didn't know that he had committed suicide in the front of our classroom. A clip from the film Living for 32 You heard the voice of Colin Goddard, a survivor of the 2007 Virginia Tech mass shootings. Goddard also talked with our Carol Boss in 2013. At what moment did you decide to work to prevent gun violence? I know you went through very intensive um, medical care and rehab, but do you remember that moment? I do. I do. It was April 3rd, 2009. It was two years, just about two years, after the shooting that I was involved with. And during that two years, I had learned a great deal about, about school policies, you know, the fact that it took almost an hour, over an hour and a half to send out an alert to the student body as to what had happened in the, the dormitory before the shooting happened in the classrooms. You know, mental health policies, the fact that this guy had actually been, you know, well-known for the, the campus a counseling center and well-known to local law enforcement for stalking girls on campus, for making uh, strange threats and writing morbid uh, things in class. Um, and in gun policy, in the terms that, you know, this ultimately because of his behavior, he was brought in front of a judge and adjudicated to be a danger to himself. And with that adjudication, that prohibits you under federal law from owning a firearm until you get that adjudication reversed. But because he was told to then get outpatient therapy instead of inpatient therapy, his record was never sent over to the background check system. So instead of getting the therapy, he walked into the gun store down the road from our school and went over the internet and bought the Glock and the 9mm and a couple hundred rounds and ultimately came on our campus. I was looking for another job, just finished clerking the House of Delegates in Virginia and was sending out resumes and, and flicked on the television just as a story broke of a shooting in Binghamton, New York Civic Center. I didn't turn away like I had been before. I sat there and I watched the entire shooting unfold throughout the the entire course of the day. And it brought me right back 
to April 16th of 2007, it brought me right back to being in my classroom, knowing what these people were going were going through, knowing that their their loved ones and their family members were getting a phone call saying that they had just had a family member who's been shot. You know, can you come to the hospital as soon as you can? When I heard about, you know, people talk about gun policy in D.C., it was always de- considered dead on arrival. It wasn't going to go anywhere. You couldn't touch it. You couldn't address it. And I just, I just kind of like what gives. And I called up the Brady campaign to prevent gun violence at the end of the day and said, I want to help. I want to share my story. I want to talk about these issues so that other people can, can learn about them. You know, is there any place for me? And they said, yeah. And I've been with them ever since. People should be allowed to purchase a firearm for their home if they like to. I support that idea. I support that concept. I support the Second Amendment. While you have that right, sometimes it might not be the best option when you have young children, when you have someone in your home fighting a mental illness. Colin Goddard, a survivor of the mass shooting at Virginia Tech in 2007. Now we hear from Annette Nance Holt of Chicago, who told Carol Boss she felt she and her former husband had already been active in addressing violence issues in their community, but the urgency of their efforts understandably increased when their own 16-year-old son, Blair, was shot and killed almost exactly a month after the Virginia Tech shootings in 2007. Annette Nance Holt helped form an organization called Purpose Over Pain. She told Carol Boss her story, starting with how Blair was killed. Oh, well, Blair was coming home from high school. Uh, He went to Percy L. Julian High School, 16 years old, a junior, and he boarded a public bus um, that was crowded with a lot of high school students from his school and a lot of just people riding the bus coming home, adults. And... um, a teenager boarded the bus and started shooting uh, toward the back of the bus um, at another gang member who I guess he had a rivalry with or something. And uh, he ended up shooting five young people that day. And my son jumped in front of a young lady and he saved her life. But as a result, he died. And the four other young people, they lived. I had read in an article that it took you a year to move the pile of folded clothes he left on the dryer in your house. Yeah, that's true. You know, um, matter of fact, in his bedroom, his room still is the same. It is still exactly the same. I have not had enough energy to go up there and tackle that. Every time I try to tackle it, it's just, it's overwhelming. It really is. I went from having a house full of life and energy and love to like nothing. He got snatched from me. So we actually started a group um, called Purpose Over Pain, where a group of parents got together and we formed an organization of our own. And we actually do outreach to parents who've lost their children to violence. And that would be providing um, money for funerals or repasses, whatever services they need, finding cemeteries they can afford, or if they want to cremate, um, buying flowers and just talking to them saying, hey, you can call us anytime you need to. And eventually getting them over to that group, Parents of Murdered Children. Um, the other two things we do is common sense gun legislation. So we go around, we've been to D.C., we've been to Springfield and Chicago and even um, New York with Mayors Against Illegal Guns and Brady Campaign to Prevent Handgun Violence. We've been everywhere talking about gun violence and how can we change this to make it so that innocent people don't die every day because guns are in, in the hands of people who shouldn't have them. And the third thing that we do is that we actually go out to community groups. We go out to high schools and grammar schools and even parent groups. And we talk about what gun violence does to families, to communities, the long-lasting effects of gun violence. Next to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where the parents of two young boys responded to the December 2012 shooting deaths of 20 young children and six adults at Connecticut's Sandy Hook Elementary School by forming a nonprofit organization of their own called Families for Peace, 
to address the gun violence issues in their own state. Carol Boss talks with Scott Cameron in a moment. But first, some audio gathered at a community vigil Cameron set up on the six-month anniversary of the Sandy Hook shootings at Albuquerque's La Mesa Presbyterian Church in 2013. Part of that grieving process, we also talked about wanting to do something, to not just feel that sadness, but to kind of transform that sadness into something more positive. Tomorrow, there's another event um, down at Martha's Garden. We're going to be doing a toy gun buyback at that event, really in the spirit of uh, you know, Gandhi, who said if you're going to have real peace in the world, you've got to start with the children. The next day, after the vigil, we tagged along at Cameron's toy gun buyback event in Albuquerque. And so as you come in, on our right we have the registration and sign-in, and there's a big box over here um, where we, collect, we were collecting the guns from the kids. A lot of the stuff is made by Nerf, um, or looks like it's made by Nerf. It's a lot of plastic, brightly colored, um, some of them pretty realistic in terms of um, this one. You know, holds a bunch of different bullets, just like, you know, a real gun kind of does. And it, and it, you know, as you shoot, it kind of spins. Tell me your full name. Brennan James Cameron. And how old are you? Nine. All right, so your dad's involved with this bit about the toy guns. Uh, uh, how do you feel about giving your guns up? Have you given your guns up? I felt good, and I knew it was the right thing, but I did feel a little tiny bit sad because what, the times we did get to play with them and nobody got hurt were pretty fun, but it's just the right thing to do. You don't want to get it in your head. Tell me more about that. Get it in your head. What do you mean? Well, you don't want to get it in your head so you haven't, when you get older, you don't want to go to jail, you don't want to shoot somebody, you don't want to get shot. And with the violent video games, those are just, that's like you're a cop. That's just messed up. So you, overall, you don't think you're going to miss the guns too much. You'll have enough fun with other stuff, huh? Yeah, and the exchange was pretty good. I, I got a cliff pass an ice cream thing, but I turned in like six or seven guns, so it w it's a good turnout. I, l I think my dad had a good idea. That's Brennan Cameron, whose dad, Scott Cameron, helped organize a toy gun buyback in Albuquerque, New Mexico, as one of many activities in response to the mass shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut in 2012. Next up, the story of a wrestling match between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. I'm actually not joking. Stay tuned on Peace Talks Radio in just one minute.
This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special featuring compelling moments from our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can find the complete episodes from which these excerpts today came from in our 2013 season at our website, peacetalksradio.com, including our program that featured an interview with peacemaker, priest, author, John Deere, who's written many books, including 2013's The Nonviolent Life which included a story about a large gathering of famous peacemakers for a conference in Colorado a little while back. So we're at this place earlier in the green room, and the Dalai Lama and the Archbishop Tutu are sitting on the couch, and the rest of us are sitting in a big circle, and we're making small talk. And the Dalai Lama says in a very loud voice to Archbishop Desmond Tutu, you know, Tutu, you're driving us crazy. You've got the biggest mouth in the world, and the whole world hates you. And everybody wants to kill you, and someone should, and it might as well be me. And with that, he throws himself on Desmond Tutu, grabs him by the neck, and starts strangling him. The Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu fall on the floor, backs on the floor, feet up in the air. They're grabbing their stomachs. Their eyes are closed. They're rock- They're both of them rocking back and forth. They're laughing so loud. And just then, because this was out of the movies, a guy walked in and said, you're on. <laughs> and they stand up, brush themselves off, and walk out and spoke to like 15,000 people. And it was the Dalai Lama and Tutu and all the other prestigious peacemakers talking about peace. And I said to myself, I want to be like that. Mm. I don't want to be an, an angry activist. I don't want to be a depressed or despairing activist. There in my new book, The Nonviolent Life, Jesus gives instructions on the emotional life of peace and nonviolence. Jesus says, don't be angry and don't be afraid. That doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But he recommends grief and joy. Now, there's nobody grieving more than Archbishop Tutu. And there's nobody more joyful that I know than Archbishop Tutu. You see that in the Truth and Reconciliation Committee and the Dalai Lama, too. And that's what I've learned from them and so many other great peacemakers. That's why I wrote this book. So you break up your book, your blueprint for leading the nonviolent life into three major sections. Practicing nonviolence toward ourselves, practicing nonviolence to others, all creatures and creation, and then joining nonviolent movements actively. So then the question is, what does it mean to be more and more nonviolent to yourself? Taking care of yourself, not hurting yourself, not putting yourself down, taking care of your body, you know, not getting caught up in all the horrible media imagery or terrible TV shows or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, and so really, really cultivating peace interiorly. And and then we can explore the spirituality of peace and nonviolence. Part two of the three-part nonviolent life is nonviolence toward others. Uh, And you say in the book, Faced with Evil, uh, at first there seem to be two choices, run away and do nothing, or stay put and use violence. But you say the great peacemakers model a third approach, something that you might call active nonviolence. This third way, whether you're talking from Jesus to Gandhi to King, is a whole methodology. You don't run away. You stand your ground. But you don't use the means of a violence that your opponent is threatening with you. So you're using a different means, which is nonviolence. Now, I've experienced that. Yes. There's a story in the book where you're at a protest march and someone approaches you yeah, with was, a very violent speed. It was a month, the month after September 11th. We were at a protest in Union Square in New York City. And this guy approached me 
a young man who looked like he was in the military. And he said, what would you do if I pulled out a knife and killed you right now in front of your friends? He came up to me and said that. So I took a deep breath and I said, well, if you did that, I guess I'd be dead. And I'd go to heaven and I'd be with Jesus and Mary and live forever in paradise. You, on the other hand, would be arrested and charged with my murder and probably face execution on death row. And all my friends and I would feel really sorry for you. Were you able to say it that calm? <laughs> yeah, I said it just like that to him. And uh, he was utterly shocked. So was Daniel Berrigan and my friends. And everybody stepped back. And he just put his hands down. He's like so disappointed because mm-hmm. I'm not engaging him. That's exactly the point of nonviolence. Right. He was so disarmed. And he came back and apologized to me. And then the last piece of your three-pronged nonviolent life in your book is joining the global uh, movement for peace. I love what Oscar Romero said the day he was killed. Nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. Pick some cause, Mm -hmm. whatever stirs, get involved in the environment, Afghanistan war, immigration, poverty, ending the death penalty, gun violence, Get involved in, uh, in an issue. I hope everybody listening is, in, is involved. But if you're not, get involved. And I'm not sure about the Internet. I think it needs to be, you know, going to a meeting, your local meeting, joining your local peace and justice group or starting a group, and then being part of some public action. And I use that word deliberately. Forgive me for being a name driver, but I got that from Cesar Chavez, who said to me, tell everybody to... Uh, get involved in public action for justice and peace. I thought that was really helpful, too. That's John Deere, once nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Desmond Tutu and author of the book The Nonviolent Life. Did you know that the first mention of a Mother's Day holiday in the United States was connected to a peace proclamation made back in 1871 by Julia Ward Howe, the woman who actually wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic? We checked the story out with her great-great-great-great-granddaughter, Kate Stickley. 1871 was the proclamation. So, oh, some good time later, and during that time she'd had reason to reflect upon her feelings during the Civil War, much like many people of her time. Whitman is an excellent example of someone who, in the run-up to the Civil War, was very pro-militaristic, but then after seeing that war didn't work, started to reconsider and start to consider other options, and later in life took a completely different tact, which was one of pacifism and peace building. We also talked with Jane Smith Bernhardt, an actor from New Hampshire who portrays Julia Ward Howe in a one-woman show. I was asked for one demonstration uh, on Mother's Day, I think, to read the proclamation And um, the more I studied it, the more wholeheartedly I embraced it as as prophetic and timeless. Here now, Jane Smith Bernhardt performing part of her one-woman show as Julia Ward Howe, including what's come to be known as the Proclamation for Peace and Call for a Mother's Day for Peace, written by Howe in 1871. Arise then, women of this day. Arise, all women who have hearts. Whether your baptism be that of water or of tears. Say firmly, 
We shall not have great questions decided by irrelevant agencies. Our husbands shall not come to us reeking with carnage for caresses and applause. Our sons shall not be taken from us to unlearn all that we have been able to teach them of charity, mercy, and patience. We women of one country will be too tender of those of another country to allow our sons to be trained to injure theirs. From the bosom of the devastated earth, a voice comes up with our own. It says, disarm, disarm. The sword of murder is not the balance of justice. Blood does not wipe out dishonor, nor violence indicate possession. As men have oft forsaken the anvil and plow at the summons of war, so now let women leave all that may be left of home for a great and earnest day of counsel. Let them meet together first as women to bewail and commemorate the dead. Then let them solemnly take counsel with each other as to the means whereby our great human family may live in peace, each one bearing after his own time the sacred impress, not of Caesar, but of God. In the name of womanhood and of humanity, I earnestly ask that a general congress of women without limit of nationality may be appointed and held at some place deemed most convenient and at the earliest period consistent with its objects to promote the alliance of the different nationalities the amicable settlement of international questions, the great and general interests of peace. I think that it's very important to say that Julia would never repudiate or dishonor any of the service that the brave men and women continue to provide for this country. And I say this because of the passage that she wrote in her journal on Wednesday, March 22, 1871. So this is from Julia's journal. I confess that I value more these processes of thought which explain history than these which arraign it. I would not, therefore, in my advocacy of peace, strip one laurel leaf from the grave so dear and tender in our recollection. Kate Stickley is the direct ancestor of Julia Ward Howe, whose 1871 proclamation for a Mother's Day holiday for peace perhaps only indirectly led to the modern Mother's Day, which was established in 1914 nationally in the United States and focused mostly on a mother's role in the family. Hey, if you were asked to come up with a top 10 list of pop and rock songs celebrating peace, 
recorded since the late 1960s, which ones would you choose? Here's the first half of the Peace Talks radio list that Suzanne Kreider, Carol Boss, and I came up with just for fun. Number 10, Leon Russell's Prince of Peace. At number nine, Peace is Just a Word by the Eurythmics. U2's Peace on Earth was our number eight. Jesus, can you take the time to throw a drowning man alive? Then at number seven, Give Me Love, Give Me Peace on Earth by George Harrison. Number six, John Lennon, Give Peace a Chance. We'll give the top five later this hour, and you can see the whole list as well as many other songs for peace at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for our September 2013 episode. Next up, part of our spotlight on restorative justice programs, the idea of peace journalism. Nelson Mandela remembered, and more when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special, featuring some compelling moments from our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls, the series producer. Some believe that our criminal justice system of trials, convictions, sentences, and then often uncertain returns to society of those incarcerated doesn't provide much chance for real healing and reconciliation. It's why restorative justice programs are being tried in some places, wherein Native American-style talking circles bring perpetrators and victims together to heal. The first time this was tried in Taos County, New Mexico, was 2001, when a young man named Chris Weathers was convicted of being drunk while driving 
in a car accident that injured two and killed one young woman. In his restorative justice circle, the families of the injured participated, but not the family of the woman killed. Carol Boss talked with him. Did the experience change your use of alcohol? I I don't drink at all uh, since that day to this. Have you ever imagined or had dreams of facing the family of the young woman who died? Coming out of prison, I had nightmares for um, pretty steady for about two years. Uh, Nightmares of the wreck. Nightmares of, of um, yeah, facing uh, the mother of this young girl that died. She, you know, I, I was ordered, uh, you know, pretrial and on parole not to have any contact with her. And I've never tried to contact her. Um, you know, I just, uh, I just pray, you know, in my own right that she's found healing. There's sort of a void there, you know, and I, and I, I know that may sound selfish on my part, but um, you know, I hope that they found healing and there's not uh, something more that could have been done there. I, you know, I, I caused harm that um, you can't repair. Uh, there's really nothing I can do to bring that other than trying to live my life as an example and, and hopefully, uh, you know, maybe deter somebody else from going down the same road that I did. This crime affected a large number of people and, and, you know, as a ripple effect, it affected the whole community. You know, seeing that, that large scale effect on people was, was really, uh, was really heartbreaking to me. And on the other side of that coin, um, you know, with the, uh, with the other victims family, there was, um, they were very, very open in their forgiveness. Um, you know, of me and, and in talking to me and saying, you know, I hope that you can pick up the pieces and, and live after this. And there was, there was, and I, you know, here I'm the person that caused this harm and these people are crying and, and putting their arms around me by the time this thing was over. Rose Gordon is a restorative justice facilitator for juveniles in Taos County. In that circle, we go through a process of everyone having an opportunity to identify what harm was done and how it can be repaired. So it sounds like restorative justice is really about giving voice and using our voices and really understanding each other's experience. Absolutely about that. Um, Everybody's voice in the circle matters. And what we used to say about circles was that what happens is you see the arising of group wisdom because it's not just one person's perspective of what happened, but it's, it's a larger picture created a, through many perspectives, and you get a much bigger picture. And there's no telling which one of those perspectives, which one of those voices is going to strike home for somebody and make a difference in their life. <laughs> Steve Youngblood is the director of the Center for Global Peace Journalism at Park University in Missouri. He's traveled all over the world giving workshops on peace journalism and defined that term for us. When we define peace journalism, it's almost easier to talk about the opposite. And the opposite is simply the traditional journalism that sensationalizes violence, that incites conflict and violence, and that doesn't consider the consequences of its own reporting. And so peace journalism seeks to counter those things. What do peace journalists report 
on that others don't or mainstream media may not. Well, I would say this, that, that for the most part, that peace journalists are reporting on the same things that mainstream journalists are reporting on. So it's not that we're ignoring violence or ignoring conflict. M- more often than not, it's about the way that we report that. So do we report it in such a way that it exacerbates conflict, that it inflames violence, or do we report it in such a way uh, that it does not? And as far as what we're reporting that others might not report, uh, I would say that that might fall in the category of giving peacemakers a voice or at least a proportional voice to those who are advocating conflict. I think it also means giving a voice to the voiceless uh, because marginalized people, as we know, as social si- science tells us, uh, that marginalized people are more likely to strike out, to behave violently, and so on. So those are the things that peace journalism seeks to do. Why does mainstream journalism, or what some are calling war journalism, why do they tilt the news that way? Well, I think some of it is habit. Um, Some of it is uh, the prevailing thought in the media that uh, what we do has to be sensational, that spicing things up and making them sensational uh, sells more papers and and, uh, gets higher ratings for broadcasts. Now, I don't know if that's true, but I think that's part of the reason. I think part of the reason is laziness, that it's easier simply to report that kind of propaganda. Part of it, too, is that uh, newsrooms these days have fewer and fewer resources. And so the resources, the ability of a Woodward and Bernstein to go out and spend months and months and months reporting these things, that's not going to happen much anymore. And it's because newsrooms are smaller and smaller and smaller. So then what are peace journalists inspired to do differently? Well, I I hope that peace journalists are inspired to take a look at the consequences of our reporting. Now we want to talk a bit with Gloria Laker, a journalist in Uganda who took some of the peace journalism workshops that Professor Youngblood taught there, where conflict has been a consistent part of the landscape for decades now since Ugandan independence from Britain in 1962. Gloria Laker spoke with us via Skype from her home in Kampala, Uganda. Before actually sitting in Stephen Youngblood's class, I must say my reporting were very sensational. I wasn't looking at helping or minimizing harm. I was looking mostly at uh, how many headline stories can I strike in a week. So I would write without caring. I want to give you an example of uh, the words which I used to use a lot. Sometimes, you know, the, the political leaders would issue statements and say, I'm giving the, Reb, the, 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 the LRA terrorists only two weeks to surrender. And I would use such a word in my, in my news article or in any communication, not knowing I was actually fueling the conflict. Because each time the rebels listen or see such a line, what they do is they just go and attack a school, abduct more children, or carry ambushes. Let me ask you in that example that you gave then, so the trigger word, as it were, was terrorists, right? Yes. And so what would you have been using to replace it that would have been fair to the conflict um, and maybe less inflammatory? What I would do is call them LRA rebel fighters. That way I was able to engage both the rebels and the government into talks. 
and I was able to in, to even interview some of the the rebels, talk to them. Um, one of the things which we always preach in class is that avoid calling names. Yeah, name calling. If they yeah, are name calling, yes. If the president called the other one a lizard, um, you as a journalist, you don't need to go the other side to the opposition side and say the president has called you a lizard because the opposition side will say, okay, then he is a monkey. Then you rush back as a journalist and say he called you a monkey. Then this one will again use a different word. So we tell them to avoid name calling. That's interesting uh, because I think uh, Americans listening to our interview will think of their own elections and their own media coverage. And if one candidate called another uh, a monkey or a bug or a cockroach or something like that, it would be very difficult for a reporter not to report that. I still stand by my point. To protect my people, I'm, not, I'm going to, I'll try to use a different word because that is already very sensational. It means to me that the political leader or whoever is talking is trying to use my medium, which in this case the radio, to incite people. So definitely I stand my point that I will not accept. I'll find a way of, you know, harmonizing the whole situation as a journalist. For example, if you already know there is a conflict, why do you want to put more fuel on fire? So don't do that because at the end of it all, it is the innocent citizen who will suffer. We are moved by a sense of joy and exhilaration when the grass turns green and the flowers bloom. Nelson Mandela's inauguration speech when he became president of South Africa in 1994. The time for the healing of the wounds has come. We have at last achieved our political emancipation. We pledge ourselves to liberate all our people from the continuing bondage of poverty, deprivation, suffering, gender, and other discrimination. We succeeded to take our last steps to freedom in conditions of relative peace. We commit ourselves to the construction of a complete, just, and lasting peace. We are both humbled and elevated by the honor and privilege that you, the people of South Africa, have bestowed on us as the first president of a united, democratic, non-racial, and non-sexist South Africa to lead our country out of the valley of darkness. We understand it still that there is no easy road to freedom. We know it well that none of us acting alone can achieve success. We must therefore act together as a united people for national reconciliation, for nation building, for the birth of a new world. Let there be justice for all. Let there be peace for all. Let freedom reign. God bless Africa. I thank you. The inaugural speech of Nelson Mandela, becoming president of South Africa in 1994. Let's hear more now from radio documentarian Joe Richmond, who spent over a year researching the story for an award-winning series called Mandela, an audio history. 
what so many of them would say about Mandela, and it's been said so often that it's a bit of a cliche, but it's a cliche that I think is true, is that what he gave to that moment, to the country and to that moment in history, was getting out of prison and not feeling bitter, not feeling angry, but being able to go, you know, to the negotiating table to be able to, to, to look forward. What do you think this story has to offer to inspire and inform people just trying to manage any conflict in their lives? Hmm. Pick Bota, who is uh, one of the one of the um, the ministers of the National Party of the White Ruling Party, talks about that when they sat down, that Mandela made this gave this whole history of the Afrikaner people, and that that's how he started. You know, basically saying. I understand your history, I understand your issues, I understand where you're coming from. He's studied me, he studied, you know, my own grievances and my own history. I think there's just something incredibly powerful about understanding your enemy, both as maybe tactically and strategically, but much more than that, understanding the other side. Mandela made a point of doing that, and I think it's something that, um, it's a lesson that I that I kind of take away from this whole history is that, you know, you have these preconceived notions about the way someone is or the way some history is. You dig a little more and you realize you weren't you're not right. <laughs> you know, there's always something a little more complicated there. Nelson Mandela documentarian Joe Richmond. Mandela died in December of 2013. We could come in as a, as, a, as a facilitators and give a lecture on what respect is and hope that somehow they'll adopt it. That's Scott Miller with the Domestic Abuse Intervention Project in Duluth, Minnesota, talking with Carol Boss about what's been working in the workshops that he leads with battering men in his program. We spotlighted the program on a Peace Talks radio episode in October of 2013. What we're going to do is we're going to go into that room and we're going to say, so tonight we're going to talk about the theme of respect and we'd like to know how you define that. Oftentimes what comes back to us is I'm respected when she does what I tell her to do. You know, the men aren't making this up at that point. They're really, it's really coming from their experience that this is, this is the problem. You know, I tell her what to do and she doesn't do it, you know, and she disrespects me all the time. So for you, respect is compliance. And, and just that statement reframes how they think about it for even just a moment. It may not change the whole world at that moment, but now they're looking at it from an alternative point of view, one that they had not looked at it before. When the guys say, you know, I don't communicate uh, that well sometimes. Well, when you don't communicate well, what do you do? Well, I scream, I yell, I call her names, I put holes in the wall, I break furniture. And what's the intent behind that? Well, to get her to understand so if she understood, what would she do? What I say, right? So they begin to see this pattern and they really have all the answers. You know, they, they know what, how this goes because it's not like they batter everybody in their lives. They batter her because they believe that, that as a man in the home, I'm entitled to control my wife. They don't believe that about their boss. So they know how to listen to their boss. So, I mean, they're not without the skill. They're not without the ability. And so our job is really to help them see who they are. And when they understand who they are, where does that take you? 
What are the consequences of that for you, for her, for your children? And really, the consequences are what really is the motivator to do, to do something different. Because they, they, then they see, this isn't working for me. This isn't getting me what I want. Domestic Abuse Intervention Facilitator Scott Miller. Before we leave you, let's get back to our top 10 list of great peace songs that we came up with. We want peace, we want it. That was our number five, We Want Peace, from Lenny Kravitz and Kadim Al-Sahir. And number four was Peaceful World, from John Mellencamp and India Ari. Peace Talks Radio fans helped us come up with the top three, and number three was by Nick Lowe. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? Number two, Cat Stevens and Peace Train. And I believe it could be something good has begun. Peace train sounding louder. And number one on our top peace songs, John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You to check out our whole top 10 peace songs and the runner ups, plus links to all the complete episodes you just heard excerpts from in this program, go to our website, peacetalksradio.com check out the programs done for our 2013 season. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you'll also find links to all the programs in our series going back to 2002. There you can hear the program streaming, you can order CDs of many of them, sign up for a monthly newsletter, a free podcast, and it's also where you can make a tax-deductible contribution to the nonprofit media organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated that produces this program separate and apart from your public radio station. In addition to support from great listeners like you, we also receive support from the Eric Oppenheimer Family Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Paul Ray Peace Prize at the University of New Mexico, and KUNM at UNM as well. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For our other hosts, Suzanne Kreider and Carol Boss, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. You may say-